0: Beg to Differ is sponsored by BetterHelp. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars. Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Johns Hopkins professor and Atlantic contributor Yasha Monk. Yasha's new book is titled The Identity Trap, and its arguments are incredibly timely. But before we turn to Yasha's book... We're going to first address the big news of the week, which is the Israel-Gaza war. President Biden is planning to address the nation Thursday evening. You listeners will already be aware of what he said. We are taping before that event. Apparently, though, he is going to ask Congress to appropriate $100 billion in aid for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and our southern border. Now... Before the Israel Gaza war has really gotten going, that is, before the planned or at least expected ground invasion by Israeli forces, we have seen an incredible example of the information war taking place. Just as President Biden was preparing to jet off to Israel, and he was also scheduled to stop in Jordan and meet with King Abdullah and Egypt's al-Sisi to discuss matters after his stop in Israel, that was canceled because of a story that appeared regarding what was called an Israeli airstrike on a hospital in Gaza. And the denunciations of Israel, of course, immediately Hamas blamed Israel and said it was an airstrike and many, many, many news organizations in the West, very prestigious and reliable ones, I would even say, like the New York Times, uh, like CNN, like the BBC, etc., all reported that there was an Israeli airstrike on a hospital where refugees were sheltering, and that hundreds of people had been killed. So, Damon, I'm going to toss it to you. It turned out that that was not true. And a lot of people are even now afraid to say that this was disinformation, that it was a lie. But it seems to me that it's very obvious that the story that Israel told and that the U.S. intelligence services and Pentagon have confirmed is the true story, that it was a misfire of a rocket by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. But What did you make of the credulity that major news organizations offered to the health ministry of Gaza, which is an arm of Hamas?
1: Well, you set it up. Such that um, my answer will not be very surprising, uh, and rightly so. This episode was really stomach-turning. I was on online, as I often am during the day when this was unfolding, and watching this live on Twitter slash X. And I really could not believe the the willingness of major, not just like the kind of far-left activists who are kind of trained to just believe anything Hamas says and will repeat anything they say. But as you indicated, major news organizations that are read all over the world simply taking Hamas's assertion at face value when we're in the middle of wartime. And there's always the fog of war, which makes news broadcasts about facts on the ground inherently dangerous, difficult, needing a verification. But then you add in the dynamic of a world that's networked with itself in all these ways on social media platforms, where a headline put out by the New York Times can be viewed instantly everywhere. And it is just beyond belief that in that situation where in fact our editorial instincts need to be more finely honed than they used to be, not less, what we We instead get is this kind of jump on the story and the trumpeting of what Hamas asserts as truth when any awareness of the reality on the ground should teach any journalist that Hamas is not a legitimate government. It is a terrorist organization that has been in charge of the Gaza Strip. For, all, for well over a decade now, and its entire mode of waging war is to attempt to win public opinion around the world by making Israel look as bad as possible. And, I mean, I didn't know what to think when I first heard that there was a bomb and went off in a hospital, 500 dead. I, re- I remember thinking, wait a minute, this was just announced 10 minutes ago and they've counted bodies? That's That seems incredibly mm-hmm. efficient. How mm. did they manage that? Well, I don't know. Because, you know, maybe it happened actually two hours ago and they only got word out now. I didn't know what to think. And I actually tweeted myself something saying – a version of what I just said here about the fog of war and how it's even foggier in the world of social media with propaganda. Is it possible, I thought to myself, that Israel, you know, launched a missile and it went the wrong way and it accidentally hit a hospital and killed a bunch of people? Yeah, I guess. I don't know what to think. But it's so easy if you're the New York Times or CNN or Reuters or any of the other organizations to simply say that, to say, reports of a hospital hit, many casualties. Hamas asserts that it was an Israeli missile investigations underway. Doing it that way is just a slight adjustment in the headline language, but it leaves open the truth, which is that we don't really know what's going on here. You can say that Hamas is making a claim, but you don't verify it rhetorically by acting like it's actually true. And we saw within the hours after the story, there were violent protests throughout the Arab-Muslim world. There was a large protest in Berlin that evening. uh, Some fires set in in, uh, neighborhoods of the city. A synagogue was firebombed in Berlin as well. Yeah. This stuff is real. And if news organizations don't take a real hard look at their practices in this situation, you know, we're going to accidentally end up blowing up the world by being sloppy. And, you know, we should expect far better from actual news organizations. They are not activists. Even if some of the people working for them think they are, they should be informed by the people in charge that they are not and shown how to do their jobs or they should be shown the door.
0: Linda, all governments lie, including the Israeli government. And so their pronouncements should not be taken at face value either. But the Israeli IDF spokesman came forward with a you know series of proofs, <laughs> including intercepts of the terrorists talking to one another and saying this is probably from Palestine jihad, etc. And there is a, an interpretation. I'd be curious to hear what you think of this. It goes like this. The vicious and horrible attack by Hamas on Israel, civilians silenced for a time the natural inclination of so many to think of Israel as the villain and the Palestinians as the virtuous victims in all stories regarding their conflict. And so people had quieted down that point of view in the wake of that horrific attack. And then when this story broke, it was like a coiled spring was unleashed. You know, It's suddenly, ah, this is it, this is it. Now we can do what we really wanna do, which is to portray Israel as the aggressor and the evil doer and so on. What do you make of that? Well, I would partly disagree with you because I think there
2: was a lot of response right after the uh, vicious uh, attack on uh, Israel. Of people defending Hamas from the beginning, but you're right in terms of the mainstream. I think the press, I think you know main, mainstream institutions were much more qualified in talking about you know occupying force or you know the Palestinian people um, as the victims of years long repression and oppression. So I think that was true. But you know one of the things that that struck me immediately. And I'm assuming like others on this podcast and many of our listeners, I was have been glued to the television to watch uh, everything as it is unfolding, particularly, you know, at times uh, in the evening when, when I have more, more time on my hand. And, and when this attack happened, the response was so immediately from the Palestinian Health Ministry, as it's called, might be better named the Palestinian Disinformation Center if, if, if in fact, what happened looks like was not uh, an attack uh, by Israel. The reports were of bombings. The report was immediately that this was Israel. The report was hundreds. Man, I heard the figure 500 thrown around, 500 people dead. And it was literally within minutes of it happening. In and of itself, that ought to have been suspicious. And the news media ought to have been more suspicious. And what was interesting to me was Israel's response was the responsible response, which was, we're going to investigate, we're looking into it. They didn't immediately say, no, it couldn't possibly have been us. They said, you know, we're going to find out. You know, there is always the possibility in a war, particularly when there's widespread bombing going on, that a bomb goes astray, that it's dropped in the wrong place. But the way in which the media was so gullible and uh, was engaging in, you know, just such willing belief in, in what was coming out of this Hamas authority, it was striking to me. And even as more evidence came out that, well, maybe it wasn't quite what we thought it was, there have continued to be both sides presented in a way that doesn't accept that we actually have hard evidence now. By the way, Al Jazeera television was doing live filming at the time the strike happened. And you could see it happening in the background. And even the Al Jazeera footage was not consistent with a bomb dropping out of the sky or a major rocket being uh, shot in, major artillery being shot in from Israel. But yet there, you know, all of the networks, MSNBC, CNN, with the exception, I think, of Fox News, frankly, they were also willing to accept what was coming out of the the health authority, which is not an independent, you know, it's not the NIH. It's not the Center for Disease Control. You know, this is an arm
0: of Hamas. Um, So Yasha, most major news organizations, you know, quickly corrected the record. They didn't say we made a mistake, but they did say, well, you know, the, the Israelis strongly contest this, and they say X, Y, and Z. And But do you think there will be uh, a reevaluation? I mean, is there any chance that this will be a situation where they'll say, we're not going to trust things that come out of organs of Hamas in the future, and we're going to be more careful? I mean, you know, Biden had to cancel that summit. I mean, it had geopolitical consequences. It inflamed the the so-called Arab street. It's no joke to get something like this so badly wrong.
3: You know, I agree with what everybody has said, but I would actually go a step further. One of the things that I found shocking about the coverage of this event is how different it was from the playbook that those same newspapers followed after the initial Hamas attack on Israeli civilians. When even hours after world leaders, including Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau and Emmanuel Macron had condemned this terrorist attack, their headlines said in very vague ways, um, you know, militant incursion into Israel, or they said things like you know Israel responds to militant attack um at the time, if you spent five minutes looking at the headlines of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the l a Times, The Guardian, you would understand far less about what was going on than if you spent five minutes following reasonable people on that much maligned social media network that used to be called Twitter and is now called X. Um, And so uh, after these outlets were so careful not to describe unconfirmed but clearly uh, accurate events in this Hamas terrorist attack, for them to turn around 10 days later and blast with uh, push alerts to millions of people that an Israeli rocket had killed over 500 people when we now know that it wasn't an Israeli rocket. And it looks like Hamas certainly lied about being able to ascertain so quickly how many people had died and probably, according to the latest indications, vastly overstated the number of people who were dead. That is not just incompetence. There you're getting into the realm of straightforward bias. Um, I don't see those media outlets apologizing. I don't see them trying to... uh, uh, advertise to their readers in as prominent terms that they had been misled as they uh, pushed out that information in the first place. And I don't see them learning from that. I just saw a tweet from NBC News, which was one of the people who acted the worst over the last 48 hours, citing Palestinian health authorities, the very authorities that lied about the hospital bombing in terms of the death toll. In Palestine over the last days, once again failing to inform the readers that what sounds like a serious and impartial source, the health authorities of a country or territory, in fact, uh, simply boils down to a Hamas terrorist organization making this
0: claim. Uh, um, Bill, first I thought I'd mention two of the worst actors were um, Rashida Talib and Ilhan Omar. Rashida Taleb tweeted: um, "Israel just bombed the Baptist Hospital, killing 500 Palestinians, doctors, children, patients, just like that. At Potus, this is what happens when you refuse to facilitate a ceasefire and help de-escalate. Your war and destruction only approach has opened my eyes, and many Palestinian American and Muslim Americans like me. We will remember where you stood. Okay. Well, that was." Tuesday, and you might say, all right, well, she was misinformed by these very news organizations that we've been describing. <laughs> no, on Wednesday afternoon, when the truth had been revealed, she was still saying that what's been really painful, quote, is to see the people who say it's okay to bomb a hospital, unquote. Bernie Sanders was scarcely any better. No uh, revisions from, from them either. And then, Bill, I'm going to just turn to you with this quote from the Dispatch is Kevin Williamson. I'm just going to read this short paragraph. Every newspaper and every reporter makes mistakes. If you aren't running regular corrections, you probably aren't doing enough work. But genuine errors are random. When the errors follow a particular pattern, generally run in the same way and almost always serve the political interests of one of the involved parties in the controversy being covered, that is bias.
4: It's bias. <laughs> uh- You know, Kevin is right, Yasha's right, you're right, we're all right. Uh, And unfortunately, it appears, at least in the short term, that there's very little that can be done about it. There's an old saying, you know, that a lie can circle the globe while the truth is getting out of bed. And uh, sadly, that is perennially true. It's true in this case, this is part of the war. And I think that the United States and Israel are going to have to proceed on the assumption that they're not going to get a fair shake from certainly not the world media and a substantial portion of the U.S. media either. That's going to have to be one of the fixed points of calculation, one of many, so to speak, facts on the ground or facts in the air. Uh, and, but doesn't
0: that let them off the hook too easily, Bill? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't they be um, held to account somehow?
4: Of course they should be held to account. But my, the point I'm making is that holding them to account as we're doing right now is unlikely to change what we're denouncing anytime soon. Some of the largest and most responsible news organizations, and here I include the New York Times, may well reflect on their errors. The rest won't. And so I'm not relaxing my criticism, but at the same time, I'm trying to take a realistic view of whether anything in the information space is going to shift significantly in Israel's favor while the war is going on or afterwards. And my answer to that question is no.
0: Okay, can I ask you one other quick question about uh, Biden? Sure. Do you think that his going to Israel, showing the energy to do it, giving a primetime speech, which we don't know how that's going to go yet, but he has been kind of magnificent in this whole thing. And yet, so far, polls show that while people do want a vigorous defense of Israel in the United States, they are dissatisfied with Biden's handling of the situation. He doesn't seem to be able to catch a break from the American voters. Well, you're right. He doesn't have a majority, but
4: at least in the surveys that I've seen, his ratings for the handling of this crisis are significantly higher than they are for his handling of most other issues that he's been wrestling with over the past two and a half years. I do think that the vigor that he's shown on this occasion, the clarity, the emotion, bleeding with his heart, but not at the expense of his head. I think that's an example of the sort of thing that he's going to have to do pretty consistently from now through next November in order to have a chance of dispelling the impression that regrettably has set in. I mean, the concrete, I think, hardened a long time ago, and he's going to have to blast it open. One episode, a major event, to be sure, is a good start, but it won't get the job done. He's going to have to do this over and over and over again. I frequently quote the old Dale Carnegie saw that you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Uh, And first impressions are very, very difficult to budge once they've settled in. Not impossible, but I I hope the president's political team understands that this kind of vigor and clarity is an example. Of what he's going to have to do very consistently, day by day, week by week, month by month, until next November.
0: Look, I am not any sort of Joe Biden cheerleader, but I do think that the impression of him being senile is completely wrong. And I think he's demonstrated that to any fair minded person's satisfaction. And how many of those do you think are left in the American
4: electorate at this point? <laughs>
0: I'm not. Being, yeah.
4: I'm not being sarcastic, Mona.
0: No, but it's like it's that old story about Adlai Stevenson. You know, sir, you are every thinking man's uh, candidate. Yes, sir, but I need a majority. Yeah, I know. And that's
3: and that's a problem with with a democratic party in general, right? That they have uh, doubled down on the educated and highly educated electorate, uh, which makes them feel lovely, but unfortunately that is not a majority of voters in the United States or in any other country or democracy, right? right. I have two other thoughts on on, on these couple of things. But sure. The first is that I'm a little more skeptical about the impact of this conflict on Biden's re-election chances, because even though I think he has handled it very strongly, um, Trump is going to run with the argument that uh, during his term in office, the world was relatively stable. And during Biden's term in office, we had the uh, humiliating retreat from Afghanistan. We had Russia's attack on Ukraine. And then we had this terrible Hamas terror attack in Israel. That is uh, unfair and it is wrong, but I fear that it is an effective electoral argument. Mm. Um, And the other thing I just wanted to say about the media is that one of the stakes here is the credibility of our institutions, right? Uh, I think that Bill is right that Israel needs to reckon with the fact that its actions are going to be portrayed in an unfair way in much of the world's media, certainly in the Middle East, very likely in Europe, and increasingly in the United States. But for the American political scene, we should worry about how the real screw-up of these institutions is going to further undermine their credibility. And it's very hard for these news outlets to... Crow about the spread of misinformation in the world when for the last 48 hours, in one of the most consequential moments, they have been the purveyors of misinformation. And that worries me because we need some trust in the media.
0: Yes, absolutely. Such an excellent point. And, uh, you know, look, there are many things that the New York Times, since we've been picking on them, justifiably, but we forgot to say that they ran a photo that was not of the hospital alongside that initial false story. But, you know, the New York Times does many things incredibly well, and the New York Times does need to guard its integrity more carefully. We need them to be reliable. We need reliable institutions. And uh, and Yasha, you're so right that for them to complain about disinformation and, and fake news around the world and then fall for it themselves or purvey it themselves is a terrible, terrible setback. Let's take a minute and talk about stress. We all deal with it in different ways. If you're like me, the news itself can be very disturbing. Some of us get headaches, others get stomach upset or insomnia, and then add to that problems with relationships or habits that you know are bad for you, but you have trouble stopping. Therapy can help so much. It's not just for people with serious trauma or mental illness. It can help you figure out how your own mind is holding you back. Sometimes we think we're protecting ourselves by thinking certain ways, only to discover that our defensiveness is actually adding to our stress. Therapy can show you how to get out of your own way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, BetterHelp is a great option. It's incredibly convenient because it's entirely online, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and get started. If that therapist isn't a good fit, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash beg to differ. All right, let's turn to Yasha's new book, which is called The Identity Trap. Yasha, thank you for this book. It is so enlightening for people who are trying to get a handle on how certain trends have accelerated over the last 10 to 15 years. You trace it very, very nicely back to the ideas that began to percolate the post-colonialism and structuralism and the various isms that are popular on campus. And then you talk about how they made a a short march through the institutions, through places like the ACLU and uh, the Ford Foundation and Coca-Cola. Tell us about the Coca-Cola training guide.
3: Well, uh, so the ideas I trace in, in The Identity Trap uh, are generally novel ideology but have reshaped how the left and much of the mainstream think about the world and think about basic identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation. And in my intellectual history, I try to... Some of the more subtle versions of these ideas, understanding them before I critique them. But in the way in which they end up being applied to the world, they're often less than subtle. And that certainly was true of this particular training, designed and inspired by Robin DiAngelo, the uh, best selling author who is a diversity consultant. And uh, in this training, which was uh, assigned to workers at Coca-Cola company, but also many other S&P 500 companies, uh, one of the slides was ways to be less white, and the ways to be less white turn out to be not reverse racist, but straightforwardly racist. Uh, it is things like caring less about uh, perfectionism, about punctuality, about the written word. In other words, in other ways, in other words, this is implying. That somehow non-white people are less interested in reading or writing, uh, less interested in uh, you know, be, being high achievers and being perfectionists, less interested in things like punctuality than white people. It is just repurposing, reclothing the worst forms of prejudice uh, in uh, seemingly progressive
0: clothes. Yeah, and you also talk about the ways in which this basically triumph of identity politics and and uh, the identity trap it poisons the possibility for unity as a country because it it envisions a world in which we were all we will all be ever more isolated in our different cocoons whether we're African American or lesbians or whatever it is. And give up on the idea that we can never understand one another, sympathize with one another, or be devoted to something higher than those particular identity groups.
3: Yeah, part of the metaphor of a book, of the identity trap, is that a, a good, effective trap contains a lure. And I understand the lure of these ideas. They claim to be the most radical, uncompromising way to allow us to fight against injustices that do persist in the United States, that are all too real. But the worry about it is that uh, not that it's sort of too radical, going too far in the right direction, it's that it's actually turning us, uh, taking us into the wrong direction. And that becomes really clear when you turn to some of those core commitments Look, it is true that I might not naturally have the same experiences as some of my compatriots, that as a guy, I may not understand the worries that many women have taking the subway late at night. Um, But the claim that uh, if I stand at a different intersection of identities from you, I'm not going to be able to understand you is misguided. And the inference that many people have drawn from it, saying that uh, the only path to political solidarity is for me to defer to your judgment since I won't be able to understand you is even more wrong-headed. It helps to explain some of the perverse thinking in the last few weeks, um, but more importantly, it sells short the ability of human beings to be in communion and to build towards more substantive forms of solidarity. What we should do when somebody tells us about an injustice is to listen with an open mind, not to dismiss them, just because we haven't had that same experience. But then we can come to fight for a just, for a better world on the basis of a shared understanding of what we want to accomplish. I can listen out uh, my friend and say, you know what, I don't think it's just for you to be more constrained in your mobility than me, for you to have to worry about taking the subway when I don't. Let's fight together for a world in which we have remedied that injustice.
0: Or if you're particularly concerned about uh, access for the handicapped, and I'm particularly concerned about the environment, maybe I can give you some of what you want, and you can give me some of what I want, and we can compromise.
3: That's right. You know, one of the real worries I have about the broad acceptance of these ideas is the way in which it uh, encourages zero-sum conflict between different identity groups. That is true at the level of a kind of social norms that many institutions have adopted over the course of the last 10 years. It is really striking and worrying to me that many elite private schools around the country now have uh, compulsory, effectively compulsory affinity groups uh, in the third grade, in the second grade, in the first grade, in which uh, teachers come into classrooms and say the black kids are going to go to that classroom and the Latino kids are going to go to that classroom and the Asian American kids are going to go to that classroom and then the white kids go into the fourth classroom. Because if we have learned anything from history and social science, it's that once you identify with a particular kind of identity group, you're actually going to fight on behalf of its interests. So even though this is meant to create um, great, uh, you know, white anti-racist activists. I think it's much more likely to produce racists and white supremacists who are going to be uh, fighting on behalf of the interests of whites, and that's not going to lead to a productive politics. But the same is true in the realm of public policy as well. Uh, you know, when the Centers for Disease Control during the pandemic deviated from the guidance uh, adopted by every other country in the world, pretty much, to prioritize the elderly, for scarce COVID vaccines when we finally had those life-serving medications. Because as the key committee advising the CDC put it, uh, elderly Americans happen to be disproportionately white. And so even though uh, uh, veering away from prioritizing them would increase the death toll by between 0.5 to 6.5%, uh, we should give vaccines to a much broader category of essential workers instead. Well, what happened next is a fight over who gets to be defined an essential worker. And what happens in general when you make politics based on group in that way is that each group sees itself as being engaged in the zero-sum battle for what do we get and how can we make sure that we get more than you. That is the uh, opposite of how you can have compromise and it's the opposite of how you can build a a positive-sum politics in which we're actually able to cooperate with each other.
0: Linda, I'm guessing you probably found yasha's book very uh welcome very, uh, <laughs> very welcome uh, welcome. Yes. Very yes, welcome yes yes thank you no it's a
2: terrific <laughs> book and of course i've i've uh, read uh, yasha's uh, work now for years and i i, I... One of the things that I find interesting, and he does talk about a little bit, but if I can have the privilege of maybe asking him a question about this, I'd like to get his response. You talked, Yasha, about the the fact that the left has for many years, and sociologists and others, academics, have said that race is a social construct. I'm actually quite sympathetic with that point of view. I think race as a biological phenomena uh, lacks the kind of rigor that we usually associate uh, with such categories but there is something contradictory in this when particularly in a society like ours which is multiracial and multiethnic to require people essentially if you're you know the product of a, a black father and a white mother the identity folks don't want you to identify as mixed race. They want you to identify as black. And so if you could just sort of talk about that a little bit and in, in the kind of self-contradictions that are inherent in identity politics in a society like ours, which is so multiracial and, and multiethnic.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, this ideology talks a lot about the idea of intersectionality, about the complicated ways in which identities end up uh, commingling But in institutional practice, they always assume very simplistic notions of identity. I'll give you two striking examples of that. The first comes from Coleman Hughes, a great young uh, writer whose father is African-American and whose mother is uh, Puerto Rican. And uh, on his first day at college, at Columbia University, he was effectively forced to engage in this kind of affinity group. And so on his first day in college, he had to choose between his Latino identity and his black identity. Um, There wasn't a group for black Latinos, right? And it's... You know, And so he had—he was forced in this moment to say, all right, do I go with my father's heritage or my mother's heritage? Um, so, so in institutional practice, this ends up being really simplifying. I have another example which speaks to a concern I have about how easily we've accepted a general pool of suspicion over forms of mutual cultural exchange, how easily the accusation of cultural appropriation has uh, allowed us to shut down forms of uh, cultural activity that I think are actually Part of what makes America beautiful, the fact that we all have origins around the world and we're able to influence each other and learn from each other and co-create. This comes from a student of mine who was an intern at the Art Museum of an Ivy League University. And uh, during the pandemic, they encouraged the interns to recreate parts of the artwork of the museum. Um, So she has a Chinese mother. Um, was living at home because of the pandemic and recreated the self-portrait of a Chinese artist with her mother, a photograph commenting on beauty standards and so on. The director of the museum told her, wonderful, you did a beautiful job, it'll go up on the website in a few days. But then she got an email from the Asian American curator at this museum saying, you committed cultural appropriation. You did a terrible thing. You should have been aware that this is utterly offensive. Uh, you're not true Chinese, so how can you... Do this? And she wrote back, very confused, saying, I understand. My mother is Chinese. Uh, you can see her in this photograph. Um, I consider myself to be Asian American. Why am I not allowed to engage in this form of culture? Uh, and the response was that since her father is not Chinese, he's Latino, I believe, this was not a- a- appropriate. In other words, this Ivy League University had effectively applied a racial purity test to whether the student could engage in this form of art and, and, and the problem here is a little bit institutions malfunctioning and doing stupid stuff, but it goes deeper than that because the moment in which you organize society around identity groups in this kind of way, there's always going to be people who are at the margins of them, who have a complicated mix of identities or who belong to a minority within a minority um, and is therefore maltreated within that group. You will always actually make life harder for a lot of people who do not neatly fit into the boxes that we identitarians uh, want to use to uh, organize all of our society.
0: Bill Galston, you are free to comment in any way you like. I just want to take this opportunity to note one of the uh, little nuggets that's in Yasha's book, that Yale University, speaking of the Ivy League, Yale University employs more administrators than it has undergraduates. You're up, Bill. I want to ask myself what we can learn <laughs> you know,
4: from the kind of analysis that Yasha has presented. And I have, I have come up with two conclusions that I find especially troubling. The first is a matter of self-criticism. When I started noticing this stuff, on college campuses, I poo-pooed it. You know, I said to myself and to some others, "Well, this is all happening in the academic sandbox, and you know, the kids are going to throw sand and you know, and uh, move their buckets and shovels around, but it really doesn't matter for the wider society." How wrong I was, and. What this tells me is that Gramsci was right and that for modern radicals, the point is not to seize the commanding heights of industry so much as it is to seize the commanding heights of culture. Uh, And through that, you know, you can move the entire society, including the political system. And I find this to be a very dramatic example of that larger truth. And I hope I don't make that mistake again. And I hope all of us will function as a kind of early warning system, since people like us tend to spend more time thinking about what happens on on college campuses. The other question I want to pose, and I find this one even more troubling, is why do so many people in positions of authority within institutions, both private sector institutions and academic institutions, yield so easily to this. What are the internal weaknesses that render the leaders of these institutions especially vulnerable to doctrines like this? Uh, Yasha's book made me think back to my time as a student at Cornell University, In the mid and late 1960s, when it became perfectly clear to me that academic administrators were unwilling to defend the integrity of their own institutions against efforts to silence dissent. Anybody who wanted to speak even mildly in favor of the Vietnam War would probably be shouted down, uh, prevented from speaking. That was an earlier example of what we've seen more recently. And so we have to ask ourselves some hard questions about not the moral idiocy of students, I take that for granted, but the moral weakness of the leaders of these institutions. And I don't come up with very many encouraging uh, answers when I ask myself that question.
3: Well, I have two thoughts about that, Bill. The first is that, you know, most Hairbrained, brained interesting, but ultimately misguided ideas that originate on campus firmly stay on campus. Um, and so to have the reaction in the first instance of saying, oh, well, uh, you know, college kids are always up to something radical and, you know, professors of comparative literature always have ideas for that are a little strange How likely is this to suddenly inspire the CDC's response to the COVID pandemic? Not very. Uh, Was I think a plausible instinct, but every now, but but when big ideological changes in society happen, they always originate from uh, seemingly obscure and radical ideas, and this turned out to be one of those cases. So I think uh, for people who dismissed this in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. I have a lot of sympathy um, for people who continue to dismiss this now but we have very strong evidence that this is reshaping a lot of how our society functions, how children are educated in schools, and uh, sometimes how public health authorities act uh, in situations of medical emergency and triage. Uh, I I think they should uh, face up to the fact that this is a real concern. And then on the second point, um, uh, this is something that I've been really struck by, just the moral cowardice of many institutional leaders in the United States. And it stands to me in contrast to the experience I've seen, at least in some other countries. In somewhere like France, I have mixed feelings about what the French call Republican values. In some ways, I think they do defend the values of philosophical liberalism I agree with, and others, I think they themselves can be a liberal in certain respects. But I see a really clear contrast where uh, people who are in charge of institutions in France actually deeply believe in these values and are willing to risk the personal interests to defend them because they have a sense of conviction and of mission. And that is something that the French educational system has helped to instill in them. I think we've realized in the last years how shallow the liberalism of a lot of liberals in the United States has been. I'm seeing signs of that improving and changing because as people are threatened by the rise of illiberal ideas, they're starting to rediscover the liberal faith. I think that the events of the last couple of weeks, with some student groups uh, actually celebrating and praising Hamas, chapters of Black Lives Matter sharing uh, posters with paragliders, celebrating the people who killed over 250 innocents at that music festival in South Israel. And of course, universities who have gotten into the habit of commenting about everything under the sun, but somehow miraculously choosing to be silent for days upon end after the worst slaughter of Jewish civilians since World War II. I think a lot of people have started to realize, hang on a second, this has gone too far. There's a real problem here and we need to speak up. And my hope is that once they do speak up, once those sleeping liberals wake up to their convictions, things can change relatively rapidly because thank God a majority of Americans uh, of all communities... Uh, Firmly reject these ideas.
0: Damon, you could say that the last 10 days have been sort of a truncation of this very point because when the atrocity first happened and we saw that reaction from these student groups, where they were, some of them were outright cheering for mass murder and rape there were some comments from even from some people i like who who said oh you know this everything that's going on in the world right now what we really have to worry about is what a bunch of stupid undergraduates are saying as if that matters and then you know within the space of 10 days you see it's not just undergraduates this kind of Moral rot has, has spread into major American institutions, including the press, where they are uh, willing to be useful idiots for Hamas in the matter of the of the hospital bombing. Am I putting it too simplistically?
1: No, no, that's certainly true, and it, it's uh, distressing to see. I, as someone who uh, who is on campuses a lot and works for one, uh, I, I see it around, and it it is distressing. It's real. It's in powerful institutions. Although I, I also liked seeing some polling data this week showing that about three quarters of the American people are firmly on Israel's side here. And uh, among Republicans, it's more like 85 uh, percent.
0: But, but, Damon, I'd be happy if they would just be against mass murder. <laughs> yes. You know, I don't care if they're on Israel's that's side. Not, okay? that's just fine. like if they it's could a, just draw that its It's line. a proxy.
1: It's they're they're against it in this particular case too. That's good. Um, but I did actually have a, a related but a slightly different point uh, that I wanted to ask uh, Yasha about relating to the the book, and, uh, you know, it's a great book. I hope everyone buys it and reads it. It's a really important contribution to this very important topic. Yasha and I share a background in intellectual history and political theory, so we kind of come at it from very similar points of view, and I appreciated very much, the kind of intellectual genealogies that he sketches in the book to explain kind of where these ideas came from. I do have a question, though, about the reception of the ideas, why they've taken root, but I've been struck by noting in, in, say, the last decade or so the pervasiveness, not just in the United States or even just in Western Europe, but around the entire world of symbolic identity gestures. I mean, the clearest example is probably the rainbow flag. You see rainbow flags in every country of the world. And everywhere you see it, it is understood universally that this is a symbolic identity expression of homosexual and sometimes trans rights. And it becomes a flashpoint also for those within those particular societies who oppose such rights. So the identity flag of the rainbow flag becomes this identity marker that everyone recognizes and that people either wrap around themselves or react to negatively in political terms. But you also have seen examples like uh, during when the George Floyd murder happened. Of course, that sparked massive unrest in the United States, some of it peaceful, some of it violent, and it reverberated for months and had effects on domestic American politics. But the striking thing is that there were George Floyd related protests all over the world. Now, these were not protests specifically about George Floyd and his fate. They were examples of people who would, who took the death of George Floyd as an opportunity to then have a protest about some injustice in their own society. But it became a kind of viral identity expression that reverberated around the world on the back of social media and other forms of media. So my question is is there anything beyond the genealogy of of this writer writes this book that gets taught in this class and then the students hear it and say oh my gosh those ideas are what i'm going to believe now as i go out into the world and i'm going to you know make a stink at my at my job at uh, the this this magazine or in this corporation or this uh, other place. I'm going to use those ideas to kind of change the world. And that's something we need to push back with better ideas. Or is there a kind of sociological base that is making people all over the world receptive to viewing the world as through a kind of identity lens and and if that is true then what is it what is it technology is it the the reality of of being a citizen in a mass democracy uh, uh, is it something about education that isn't just happening on American university campuses, but somehow everywhere. It could be any number of things. And as I said, I don't have like a great answer. I, it's a mystery to me, but I, I'm very curious to hear what you think about that.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Let me say two things about that. I mean, the first is that identity politics as such is new, and I'm not opposed to all forms of identity politics. Um, I think one of the proudest political traditions in the United States, which extends from people like Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King Jr. and arguably Barack Obama, was in part based on a form of identity politics. But what distinguished it from the current tradition is the nature of its aspirations. Uh, Frederick Douglass called out the hypocrisy of his compatriots in his famous and lovely speech commemorating the 4th of July, saying, how can you talk about all men being created equal when my brethren are being held in chains. But he didn't say rip up the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. He said, let us live up to it. If you mean those values seriously, then by what virtue, by what justification can you exclude me from the full enjoyment of these principles? He recognized that people were saying terribly racist and unpleasant things in his day in newspapers all around the country. Um, But he called free speech the dread of tyrants because he realized that it actually gives a voice to the marginalized and the oppressed. Um, The tradition of identity politics that is now orthodox on university campuses explicitly rejects that tradition. Derek Bell, uh, the founder of Critical Race Theory, is a civil rights lawyer who comes to regret his activities as a civil rights lawyer, his efforts to desegregate schools through the American South, saying that perhaps in some key ways, Brown versus Board of Education was a mistake, uh, arguing that we should get rid of what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Kimberly Crenshaw, another key figure in this tradition, ends up saying that the uh, philosophy and politics of Barack Obama is fundamentally at odds with the key tenets of critical race theory. And the key of their claim is that these universal values haven't helped us make progress on the contrary they're meant to pull the wool over people's eyes. They have perpetuated discrimination. So to do better, we have to get rid of them and explicitly make how all of us treat each other in this conversation and how the state treats us in something like a COVID emergency explicitly depend on the racial groups of which you are a part. So the problem partially is just about the form, the model of identity politics that has won out in the last couple of decades. And that is an intellectual story. Now, I agree with you, it's not just an intellectual story. And in the first part of the book, I trace the intellectual origins of this novel ideology that I do think uh, has had a real influence on the world by providing a model for how people can think and talk about the world that is appealing to a lot of people and that has shifted what the left believes in. But I also talk a lot about sociological and technological shifts of the kinds you talk about. And perhaps the key one here. Uh, does have to do with social media. When uh, we invented the internet and social media, the idea was that people would go and communicate with people who are far away, right? Suddenly it was costless to speak to somebody in Nigeria and perhaps I would uh, spend all my time on the internet um, uh, chatting with somebody from Nigeria about the world and uh, seeing what we have in common. Instead, as we know, the internet had something like the opposite effect. It made us seek out the people who are as like to us, as similar to us, as possible. I talk extensively in the book about the role of social networks like Tumblr, which really encouraged people to self define by new identity labels and made it possible for identity labels to proliferate. Right? When you think of the analog world or of the offline world, uh, you go to high school, you want to construct your own identity as a teenager, there's four or five of those on offer because you need a minimum number of people around you who share in that identity. Um, and in an offline world, uh, that is just going to be a somewhat limited number of people. So you have to choose between being a jock or a, a theater kid or you know whatever sort of populates the world of 1990s high school movies, right? In the online world of Tumblr, you can self-create an identity label like demisexual or like Libra Gender, find the 20 people on the World Wide Web who like to co-create with you and suddenly you can say, this is who I am. And then to communicate with each other, we need this meta ideology that somehow brokers the peace. that says, if I offend you, it's my fault, even if I didn't mean to. And so we have to be on the guard against microaggressions and so on. So I do think this technological shift is a large part of what has explained this strange doubling down on identity precisely facilitated by a technology that we once naively believed might accomplish the opposite.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think you can see why you need to rush right out and get this book, because it is full of incredibly interesting insights like the ones you just heard. With that, I want us to spend a little bit of time on the Speakerless House there is news as of today that Jim Jordan is not going to press his claim to be elected speaker after all. He's not going to ask for a third vote, and he is going to, at least until January, support the idea of enhancing the powers of Patrick McHenry, who is the speaker pro tempore right now, Linda Chavez, the Republican Party in the ten months since they took control of the House of Representatives, the GOP has nominated three different people. Brendan Buck says, and to serve as Speaker of the House, and not one of them currently holds the gavel. It's really quite stunning,
2: and actually a little bit scary. We're living, I mean, as we've been talking about during uh, much of this program, in a very, very precarious time. We have. Major war going on in Europe, uh, in Ukraine. We've got attacks in Israel, and I think soon to be a ground operation uh, in Gaza. We have uh, China trying to make inroads or, uh, around the world and Africa and Latin America and elsewhere, and gaining support there. We have Vladimir Putin with a closer alliance to Iran and other places, and meanwhile, the Congress of the United States cannot function. I mean, when you do not have a speaker, you cannot do the ordinary business of the United States Congress. And uh, the fact that you have, you know, this happen as a result of Matt Gates of all people, basically bringing down, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, and for what purpose? I mean, it was not as if there was this clamor that, you know, McCarthy needs to be replaced by X kind of candidate. The conference itself can't even really agree on who they want to support. And the Republicans are showing themselves to not be fit to govern. And I say that as a longtime Republican, as somebody who, on philosophical reasons, probably agrees more with the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. But the Republicans, as they are currently making themselves uh, clear to the American people, aren't fit for governing. And, you know, there is now supposedly a compromise. We'll see. I mean, I hesitate to speak because at the time we're recording this, things could change uh, dramatically in the next 24 hours but empowering uh, Mr. McHenry to at least um, preside over the House of Representatives so that uh, Congress can function is, I think, an important thing to do. But it looks like that won't happen unless there is Democratic support. And if there is Democratic support for that idea, that there are some Republicans who won't support it. So it's a mess. We have never in the history of this country seen anything like this, where Congress itself ceased to be a functioning institution.
0: Bill Galston McHenry, compared to some other people in the GOP conference, uh, is fairly sane and a normal person. He did not go along with two-thirds of his colleagues in voting not to certify the 2020 election. He did vote to certify it. He is uh, not a bomb thrower. He has built alliances across the aisle, by the way, all of which would be the kiss of death in this GOP, one would think. There is an argument that some people make that, you know, this is the best of all possible outcomes, just make him like temporary speaker and uh, kick the can down the road, but at least we'll have a functioning Congress. And other people say, no, you know what, that's not who the Republican Party is anymore. The bomb throwers really are the soul of the party, and it would be better for all concerned if... They did have a Jim Jordan or the equivalent as speaker, because then the voters would be getting, the Republican voters would be getting what they asked for, uh, good and hard. The argument that you just summarized, I think, is too clever by half. Uh,
4: the fact of the matter is that there is urgent business and home and abroad. And failing to address the, uh, the issues before us is not cost free. And the idea that Republicans can have their noses rubbed in their own, shall I say, product. The idea that we would endure, in effect, another 13 months of what we've seen for the past 16 days, just to teach them and the country a lesson, which by the way, I don't think would be learned, that is very, very risky. We've already seen the consequences of not having a functioning house during the current crisis. The president wants to send, and will almost certainly send, a big package, the number $100 billion has been thrown around, to deal with a bunch of really burning issues. Ukraine is a burning issue. Israel is a burning issue. God knows the southern border is a burning issue. And not to mention the fact that the government shutdown was deferred but hardly denied you know it's staring us in the face and we've made absolutely no progress the idea that we would somehow be able to do better on the budget crisis if we had no functioning speaker at all is preposterous so i'm not one who says that this is the best of all possible outcomes but as an interim step it's infinitely preferable to anything else that could possibly happen between now and the time the government shuts down, which, if memory serves, is November
0: 17th. Four weeks. Right. Yasha, there are so many shifting coalitions in the GOP at the moment. It's it's really difficult to sort of map out who's who, and who are the radicals, and who are the moderates, uh, because they are very shifting. Although some people did give a wry sort of look at the idea of Jim Jordan, bomb thrower extraordinaire, making an appeal to his colleagues to be team players and elect him speaker. (laughs) Um, But say a word if you you care to about the way this shows, perhaps, that the Trumpian tactics— Uh, that works so well for Trump don't always work for everybody. So Jordan and his allies, apparently, were really trying to intimidate members. They were, several members came forward and said publicly that they had received death threats, that they had received harassment, Don Bacon, as noted sort of regular Republican moderate from Nebraska, said that his wife was receiving uh, messages saying, your husband is destroying the Republican Party and threatening her. And he said, it's wrong that the folks have no boundaries anymore. And, you know, it makes you, you know, say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> where have you been? That's the, the party that became Trump's party. But it does seem that it has backfired at least on Jordan, right?
3: Yeah, you know it's funny with, with with the speaker stuff. I mean, every uh, Republican House Speaker or or minority leader that we've had in you know the last years seems so much worse than the next. I mean, by the time that the Republican hardliners are trying to get rid of a current one, you think, oh my god, I hope they uh, keep him because yeah. he's so much better than what's going to come <laughs> after this. So it's a, it's a very strange uh, situation where you end up having sort of a Stockholm syndrome. Uh, affection for the current, you know, Republican about to be ousted, because even though you don't share any ideological affinity with them, and because even for they themselves have been, you know, responsible in a million ways, you know that it's still better than the alternative that's around the corner. But to speak to your point, you know, one of the things that I've slightly changed my mind about, or I think I'm changing my mind about, um, is how unique Donald Trump is. Now, I've always tried to explain and warn about the threat of somebody like Donald Trump in the broader context of authoritarian populism around the world. And we've seen that as for various reasons, the sort of structural uh, makings of this form of politics have been put in place in lots of countries. We've seen a similar threat to democratic institutions in many different places, from Hugo Chavez in Venezuela from Narendra Modi in India, from Viktor Orban in Hungary, from Recep Erdogan in Turkey. And I continue to stand by that. But- I used to think that there wasn't anything that special about Trump. That as I said a few times, you know, in a rich, raucous republic of 300 million people, you're always going to be able to find somebody to voice and ventriloquate a certain set of positions. And so we should focus less on Trump individually than on the questions of why it is that his politics might now be so popular. Um, and yet, I think you're right that it's turning out to be true that it's not so easy to find somebody to, to replace Trump. Now, partially that's because Trump is still in the picture himself, and he's the person who really commands the energy. But, you know, I don't think Ron DeSantis is capable of replacing uh, Trump. I don't think Vivek Ramaswamy is capable of replacing Trump. And it doesn't look like Jim Jordan is capable of replacing Trump either. And I guess the one slight silver lining for that is that, uh, you know, once Trump leaves the political scene, uh, the energy behind him certainly will remain The Mugger control over the Republican Party, at least for a while, will likely remain. But it may be hard for that movement to substitute him. And that perhaps leaves some kind of opening for our political system to eventually get back to something distantly resembling some form of normality.
0: Damon, a couple days ago, some of us were, you know, feeling that old familiar sense of depression and deflation at the number of moderate Republicans who were suddenly coming forward and saying they were actually going to find a way to support Jim Jordan and thinking, here we go again. You know, the moderates, they always cave and uh, they always go along with the MAGA's. And it looks like today that did not happen. Is this a good news story? It might
1: be, but I, I I hate to you know throw a wrench into um, the very modest good mood that we're all in about this because while we have been recording this. The latest news is that the McHenry resolution uh, is not really coming together. Uh, A quote from Jim Jordan from, uh, I guess, a half hour ago. We're recording this around 3 p.m. on uh, Thursday. Quote, we made the pitch to members on the resolution as a way to lower the temperature and get back to work. We decided that wasn't where we're going to go. I'm still running for speaker and I plan to go to the floor and get Uh. the votes and win this race. And so it continues. Who knows? Like by the time yeah. people can listen to this, he may, he may have gone through like two more votes that he's lost by even more, and he still won't. Ref- he still won't go into the sunset. Um. So I guess my my answer to your question is: We'll see. It looks like the moderates are going to have to keep their spines in place for a little while longer as they try to figure out just what the heck they're going to do here. I mean, I am pleased that they've gotten this far. But, you know, they are dealing with what Republicans all over this country have been having to deal with for the last number of years, which is the perennial threat that if they don't toe a line, go along with the ratcheting rightward of the party. And I don't mean that just an ideology, but as we've all sort of indicated, in terms of tactics, willingness to just throw a wrench into the gears and stop government from doing anything just for the sake of making a stand of some kind, um, to show that they're, they're passionate enough to do that. So whether these these 20 or so moderates come from districts where there are enough moderate voters and the configuration of things is such that they could survive a right-wing challenge and then maybe or maybe they say you know what maybe there will be a right-wing challenge in, a, in you know in the next election but this is important enough securing funding uh for Ukraine and Israel and other things is worth it i'm going to do the right thing and stick to my guns and not back down and eventually we will be able to pass the aid that is needed and if it means that i'm torpedoed in in a few months then uh, so be it that's if my The constituents are so foolish that they would do that to me, then they can do it. I'm going to do what I can while I'm here. So that's basically what we're asking them to do, which is, you know, greater, believe me, a greater show of courage than Matt Gates or any of the others in making a calculation of what will get them on uh, Newsmax tonight uh, for having uh, made more right-wing headlines. That is, I think, more their motivation than it is uh, for the moderates who actually, I think, want to get something done
3: Done. Thanks for sharing that update, Damon. I, I just want to say I, I retain full confidence in the ability of a Republican Party by the time that this podcast goes out to uh, have found a, a reasonable moderate compromise candidate like, I don't know, Marjorie Taylor Greene
1: or somebody. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Every time.
0: Yes. Uh, as you said earlier, it can always get worse. Uh, Arguably, the Speaker of the House with a Republican majority is the very worst possible job, and what sane person would want such a job, which is why I thought Ken Buck of Colorado did have the best line of the week when uh, he was asked why on one of the votes in particular he had chosen to vote for Tom Emmer, and he said, it's because I don't like Tom Emmer. (laughs) All right. And now it is time for our final segment, highlight or lowlight of the week, and we'll start with our guest, Yasha Monk.
3: You know, I'm gonna go back to, to to the lowlight we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. You know, we need functional institutions that aren't caught by ideology that are fit for purpose. And so, one of the lowlights of the week for me was the failure of a mainstream news outlets to report on this war in a responsible manner.
0: Thank you. Damon Linker.
1: Well, I, you know, have read a a number of Terrible things over the last week about the uh, Israel-Hamas war, Uh, but I've also read a a handful of extremely good ones, so there's some competition for a highlight this week, but I'm going to fasten on to someone I've mentioned several times over the years here, uh, and that's Matthew Iglesias on Substack. He's written a couple of very good pieces uh, about events in Israel, but I'm going to highlight the more recent one titled, Palestinian Right of Return Matters. And If you're an expert on the Middle East, if you've watched it closely for your whole life and studied its history, you probably won't learn much factually new from this. But what's really great about this piece is that uh, Matt somehow manages to talk about this extremely divisive, controversial issue without really, I think, displaying any, any kind of noticeable bias. Now, I'm sure... People Well, then, you know, say that isn't true. He's clearly made, he has uh, sub- submerged premises that are actually anti-Palestinian or pro-Israeli. But I really think it's a very admirably fair-minded look at and dispassionate way of looking at just the, the fact that the Palestinians continually over now 75 years are insisting that the thing they want is a right of return to Israel. He looks, Matt, looks at where that comes from and puts it in the, the where it belongs in the broader context of refugee c- claims and how unusual it is for people who are refugees from a war to not seek to be resettled elsewhere, to find a new home for themselves, but to remain where they are in refugee camps or close to refugee camps, and to insist for three quarters of a century that the only acceptable resolution is to go back to where they fled all those years ago and reclaim uh, their loss. And the fact that this is the difference between saying that if you're pro-Palestinian, that doesn't really mean you're in favor of what would make life better for the Palestinian people. What you're saying is you're in favor of advancing the Palestinian cause, which is distinct from what might be best for the Palestinian people. So if you're interested in thinking through some of these issues, I can't recommend Matt's piece strongly enough. It's very good.
0: Thank you so much. Linda? Linda?
2: Well, last week we talked about the demonstration uh, in New York City that was organized by the Democratic Socialists of America, and I said that I, you know, knew them from the seventies, and you know, gee, now suddenly they're very anti-Israel, and certainly didn't start out that way. So I uh, heard from a friend of mine who's also a friend of this podcast; he's been a guest, Ron Radosh, who is an historian, and he wrote a piece a couple of years ago. So this is not a new piece I'm recommending, but I think it's one worth reading because it does go into the history, not just of the democratic socialists of America, but really the move on the radical left to become Anti Israel. Uh, the piece uh, appeared in Mosaic. It's called How America's Largest Socialist Organization Went From Supporting Israel to Boycotting It. And it, he says in the subtitle, The Jewish State is the New Litmus Test for the American Left. And it was um, written, uh, published in uh, December of 2021 in Mosaic. I'll also note that he talks a lot about uh, the 2016 election and the way in which the Bernie Sanders campaign really um, speeded this along and expanded the influence of the DSA. It's a a very good read, and I recommend it highly.
0: Thanks so much. Um, Yeah, I think uh, my own modest contribution to the intellectual history here. uh, I, I happened to hear a section of a speech by one of the squad this week, Cori Bush, who um was sort of she perfectly encapsulated i think some of this intellectual shall we say cultural appropriation because the terms that she was using about israel the apartheid regime and the references to george floyd and so on so clearly shows that some people on the left have mapped us history and our racial our history of racial injustice and so on onto a, an area of the world where it doesn't apply at all, and it's a completely different history and a totally different story. And yet, because of that sort of false um, analogy, uh, it has become a great cause, well, maybe for other reasons as well, but that's part of it, I, I do think. And Mona,
3: if you allow me the one, uh, yeah, the, the one plug for my own book, if you want to understand how and why that happened to read The Identity Trap.
0: Yes, agreed. Bill
4: Galston. Well, I have a highlight and then an additional item that uh, listeners can categorize as they choose. Uh, My highlight is the extraordinary number of retired senior Israeli military officials who, upon hearing of the emergency, took the weapons that they had in their houses, usually pistols, and rushed to the front line and performed not only heroically, but effectively. I think it says something about the nature of the IDF that the generals, the retired generals and, you know, and colonels still see themselves as fighters. And I wonder how many senior US officials, military officials would be as effective in those moments of crisis just a speculation. But these stories of heroism, General Ziv, General T-Bone, many others uh, have really uh, struck me quite forcibly.
0: Bill, before, sorry, before you get to your next point, can I just interject that Noam T-Bone, one of the generals you're referencing, is the father of Amir Tibon, who is a correspondent for Haaretz and has been a guest on this podcast. He had a harrowing experience. He was—he lives on one of those kibbutzim that are right on the border of Gaza, and he and his wife and his two tiny daughters, three and I think 18 months, were trapped in their safe room for something like 12 hours, no light, Uh, uh, you know, and, and very little water and had to keep the girls quiet. So anyway, his is one of those stories. And I just wanted our listeners to know that, yes, indeed, that was our former guest who experienced that.
4: Yep. That was
0: an extraordinary
4: story. And Amir Tibone's, you know, uh, you know, recitation of the story, you know, where he hears his father's voice, and he said, "Abba, Abba," ah, mm. uh, I just burst into tears. Yeah,
0: yeah.
4: Uh, now for the now for something that creates in me, you know, quite something quite different from <laughs> tears, except perhaps tears of laughter, but it certainly involves me in the exercise of the noblest of human vices, namely Schadenfreude. Uh, (laughs) The past week has witnessed the extraordinary spectacle of Newt Gingrich. Yes, Newt Gingrich, criticizing the radicalism of the extreme right wing of the Republican Party and denouncing them as childish people who are getting in the way of governance. Now, (laughs) for those who know anything about Newt Gingrich's ascent to power, the ironies are delicious. This is my personal nomination for the funniest statement
0: of the week. (laughs) Thank you for that. All right. I would like to highlight something that happened in the world that was not terrible this past week, and namely that Poland held an election and the ruling party that has proved itself to be Uh, nationalist, uh, right-wing, authoritarian, and uh, possibly attempting to crush Poland's young democracy, uh, was defeated. So the Law and Justice Party uh, got, well, it did get the most number of votes by a narrow margin, but it was a multi-party parliamentary race, and therefore a coalition of center-right and center-left parties will probably, almost certainly, form a coalition government, and uh, law and justice will be deposed. I would refer everyone to uh, Anne Applebaum, so f- frequent guest on this podcast. Anne Applebaum has a piece in The Atlantic that says, Poland shows that autocracy is not inevitable. And she points out that, first of all, there was tremendous voter turnout, 74% of eligible voters. That they prevailed, even though the ruling party had controlled the major media and had altered the electoral laws to advantage itself, and even um, leaked top-secret military documents, attempting to manipulate voters, and none of it worked. So it is—it uh, is an encouraging thing. It's a reminder that while democracy lasts, it, the, the voters are still powerful. So maybe a, a hopeful lesson for the world from Poland this week. With that, I want to thank our guest, Yasha Monk, whose book is The Identity Trap. And Yasha, has it already been published or is it about to be? It
3: has been published a few weeks ago. Uh, it was temporarily out of stock. But if you go to Amazon or your favorite bookseller right now, you can get the book within the next few days
0: okay terrific so and thanks to our regular panel as always our producer is jim swift our sound engineer is jonathan siri we thank them as well and of course we thank all of our loyal listeners and we will return next week as every week i will be gone next week but we will have a guest host thanks very much